This podcast contains graphic imagery and language. It's not recommended for those under the age of 18 or those sensitive to death, violence, and war. When I was 16 years old, I remember coming home from high school and sitting in front of the TV. The war in Iraq had just started and every news station was broadcasting live video of Baghdad. A-Day, the start of A-Day, the start of the, the campaign called Shock and Awe. Over the next 24 to 48 hours, perhaps as many as 3,000 Tomahawk cruise missiles. Reporters said that U.S. troops were deploying to Kuwait and preparing for an invasion. For some reason, I wanted to be there. I wanted to wear a Kevlar helmet and a flak jacket. I wanted to hear the explosions up close. And I did. Two years after graduating high school, I was a gunner in the lead vehicle of a convoy. When an improvised explosive device detonated near my Humvee. The blast knocked me unconscious. My legs went limp, and for a brief moment, I forgot where I was. When I came to, I stood back up. My ears were still ringing, and I checked my limbs. I was okay. You're listening to Grunt, a podcast about war and those who fight it. I'm your host, Alex Walensky. On this episode, we're going to hear a story about another Marine's perspective about war in Iraq. A war that suffered nearly 4,500 U.S. casualties and over 32,000 injured. If you want to help us create a platform for veterans to tell their stories, then visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash gruntpodcast. Hi, my name is Chris Krogan. I was in the Marine Corps Infantry for five years. I always wanted to join the Marine Corps. When Krogan was seven years old, he saw a poster of a Marine in combat fatigues sliding down a rope from a helicopter. That's when he knew he would be joining the Marines. I remember being like, I'm going to be like that guy when I grow up. They were these superhero type people. He had plans to be a lifer. That's someone who stays in the service until retirement. I uh, thought that I was going to be in for 36 years until they kicked me out, so... American and Iraqi forces are moving deeper into Fallujah this morning, despite intense gunfire. Uh, You know, I joined in 2005, so the war was pretty bad at that point, and it was getting a lot of coverage. Parts of Fallujah lie in ruins as Operation Phantom Fury unleashed the firepower of the United States military. The Marines are taking Fallujah one house and one street at a time. The infamous Battle of Fallujah had just taken place. 107 killed, 613 wounded in November and December of 2004. But this didn't stop Krogan from walking into the Marine Corps recruiting office. I walked in and I said, I'm joining. I know that I want to join the Marine Corps Infantry. 
I went and did my ASVAB and everything. The ASVAB is a military aptitude test. The higher you score, the more jobs within the military you qualify for. And when he got my ASVAB scores, he pulled out this big book that had all the jobs in it. And he went to all the combat arms jobs. And he circled them and he put an X through them and he said, you're not allowed to go to these. Krogan still figured out how to get into the infantry. This is where I want to go because one, it's an adventure. Two, it's a place where I felt that I could actually do some real good for people who were creating, at the time, were creating their own nation. But before he could go into the infantry, Chris would have to go through boot camp. In the Marine Corps, this is three months long of intense training, where the typical morning starts at 4 a.m. seven days a week. Recruits are trained by drill instructors, some of whom had recently been in combat. One of my drill instructors had just gotten back from the 2004 Fallujah campaign. This guy was amazing. Krogan credits his drill instructor with preparing him for combat early on by teaching recruits how to respond to certain combat situations. You guys are all going to get shot at, so I'm going to teach you how to, you know, if you guys were going to do a hard hit on this house, how would you do it? A hard hit is when Marines enter a building unannounced, expecting combat with the enemy. After Krogan graduated boot camp, he went to the School of Infantry to become an assaultman. I decided to be an assaultman because you were taught all the 0311 rifleman stuff, but then you got extensive training on all weapon types and extensive training on um, explosives. One job of an assaultman is to blow things up. They use rockets, mines, and other explosives to take out enemy tanks, walls, barriers, and weapons caches. The basics are learned at the School of Infantry. After that, they're assigned to a unit in the Marine Corps fleet. Krogan was assigned to 3rd Battalion Lima Company, based out of Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. An infantry company has anywhere from 100 to 250 personnel. And for fresh Marines straight out of infantry school, it can get very hectic. People's beds getting ripped up, you know, things getting thrown into the quad. And I, you know, there's this big thing about hazing, but I think there is a place within that type of, especially infantry, that works when you're dealing with a bunch of 17 to 25-year-old young men who are training to kill other people. Training for deployment can take several months. Units use this time to get new Marines up to speed on the latest tactics. Krogan worked and trained alongside more experienced assault men. There were only 13 of us in the whole company. We went to various schools. We went to small ranges, uh, shoulder mounted assault weapons, the modern day bazooka. Feel like a badass. It's the loudest infantry weapon in the military. So I have really bad hearing loss <laughs> in one of my ears. <laughs> but totally worth it. You feel amazing. It can take out armor, it can drop buildings. Then we did two weeks straight of every day at the range. Shooters, stand by. Targets. We're going to the range, we're doing squad shoots, we're doing company shoots, we're doing single shoots, we're doing pistol shoots, we're doing CQB. Just shoot, 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 shoot. CQB stands for Close Quarter Combat. This training prepares Marines for urban warfare environments like Fallujah. 
Krogan and his company weren't sure if or when they would go to a war zone, but units don't find out exactly where they're going until about a month before they deploy. Rumors that Lima Company would be going to the heart of the war zone were soon confirmed. You guys are starting off in Habania, outside of Fallujah proper. Habania is a small town, about two miles across, with a population of about a thousand people. Before Lima Company deployed, they began receiving reports from the battlefield to get an idea of what they would soon be facing. Here's one report Krogan remembers. An after-action report about a Marine unit that was ambushed. They just got lit up. They were walking through a section of Habania, and 12 or 13 guys over the side of the roof just lit them up. These 12 to 13 guys he's talking about were insurgents armed with AK-47s. One or two died outright. Three or four were wounded. The whole after-action report read as a confused, just, oh, dear God. That's kind of the feeling I got when I read it. I was just like, what the hell are we supposed to do? You know what I mean? If I'm walking down the street and 13 guys decide to just all shoot me at the same time, I mean, no amount of training is going to cover that. It was scary. These reports also revealed important details about the enemy combatants. In my mind, it went from us fighting poorly trained, poorly equipped people who just kind of have a problem with Americans to well-trained, well-funded badasses. We were going to be fighting Chechenians, Iranians, Syrians. We were going to be fighting people that were coming into Iraq to specifically fight us, who if they want you dead, they can get you dead. So scary. <laughs> before deploying, Marines are prepared to face the worst situations. They practice putting on a tourniquet around their own limbs and how to treat a sucking chest wound. They learn the effective range of enemy weapons like the AK-47 and how to use those weapons just in case. 115 service members died and another 706 were wounded in December 2006. The following month, Krogan and 3rd Battalion 6th Marines Lima Company flew into Iraq. We knew, at least in my head, I knew people were going were gonna to get hurt. These thoughts had been lingering in Krogan's head before he arrived. Marines often wonder, what will war be like? Will I come back alive? Will I have another Thanksgiving with my family? And then there are thoughts of injury. Will I come back with my limbs and my sight? Under the cover of darkness, Lima Company Marines drove into Habania. For many of them, it was their first time in a war zone. Here they met one of the Marines they were soon replacing. He was a squad leader who had seen his fair share of combat. We dismount and we do it like 360 security, you know, doing everything super proper. And I see this guy, he couldn't have been more than 22, but he looked like a, you know, 30-year-old recon ranger, fucking super badass to me. His gear was fucking, it was weathered. He was weathered. He had a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and we were blackout. Blackout is when a unit operates in complete darkness to avoid being seen. 
remember one of the guys like, dude, we're running blackout, put out the cigarette. He's like, you don't think these motherfuckers know we're here right now? You don't think they already have a head count? Let's go. So we're like doing everything by the book and everything. And uh, this red car comes down the road. It's midnight, you know. He flips shit. And he runs up to this car, smashes the window out, and pulls the dude out of the car. And we're all like, what is going on? And he's like, what the fuck are you doing out here? Like, makes the guy open everything. And we're sitting here being like, holy God, this guy is a monster. Like, he's not a good dude. No wonder the Iraqis hate him. The squad leader put things into perspective for Krogan and the Lima Company Marines. Why is he out here at midnight? There's no 7-Eleven around here. They later found out that the man in the red vehicle was an insurgent posing as a civilian. That evening, he was gathering intelligence on the arriving Marines. Lima Company's first mission would be to drive the insurgents out of the town. The insurgency was using it as a hub for part of their network. Located about a 20-minute drive west of Fallujah, here is where insurgents stored their weapons and recuperated after battle. In order to retake the town, Lima Company would need to establish a forward operating base right in the center of Habania. That's what initiated their first order. Like, you're going to do a hard hit on this house and then give them a bunch of money and kick them the F out. And we walk up to a house that is basically a compound. They have these really tall walls, 10 to 15 feet high, very, very thick. So we do it. We do a hard hit on the house. For several Marines, this was their first time conducting a raid in a combat zone. Lucky for them, there were no insurgents occupying the house. Since it was located right in the center of the town, it was next to a mosque. Five times a day, they do prayer, which is fine, you know. But they have speakers. So the whole town can hear, you know, kind of like church bells and things like that. But the problem was, is that we had to have posts to be able to see around us and for security. Literally, you had the post and a megaphone almost jutting directly into the post. So it literally would be like me standing right next to your, your head, just screaming five times a day. Although the Marines had trouble sleeping, their superior skills and firepower were no match for the insurgents, who soon fled. They moved north to a village called Abu Bali. In the meantime, the Marines of Lima Company began foot patrols through Habania, where part of the mission was to get the locals on their side. We'd kind of go out and say, hey, we need to talk to this, this leader, or we're going to see if we can find somebody who needs medical care, or we're just going to talk to people about what they think that they need. You know, we did a lot of medical care there. Krogan's company provided care for many Iraqis. He especially remembers coming across a young girl who had a shrapnel wound that had healed over, but had gotten infected. So um, one of our corpsmen, Doc Franz, actually had to do surgery on her. 
Yeah, because she would she would have died. I mean, it was that bad. With no anesthesia, two Marines held her down while the corpsman did surgery. The mom is just shrieking, you know, so we're trying to keep everybody calm. So he cuts it open. He actually gets this little piece of shrapnel out. It was really small and uh, drains all the pus from her head. Took like half an hour, patched it back up. And that was something that we made sure that we stopped by at least two or three times a week to make sure she was doing all right. And we had a, we had a bunch of people in town that we would do that for. Lima Company did many favors for the locals, like repairing one of the water purification plants that had been damaged by the insurgents. Um, so it was a lot of humanitarian stuff. It was some of my favorite time. I felt like I was doing what I joined to do, um, making sure that these people were safe and getting water and getting medical care and stuff like that. Lima Company would spend two months patrolling the streets of Habania, and although the insurgents had fled, they were still doing short, quick attacks on the Marines. Krogan remembers getting shot at for the first time, which is not only a frightening experience, but a confusing one. When everything happened, I remember just sitting there being like, where's the fire coming from? Do I return fire? I think everybody was like that. Oftentimes in combat, it's not clear where the enemy fire is coming from. Meanwhile, insurgents were using a variety of tactics to harm the Marines. At first, we were having enough trouble with them planting IEDs, shooting the compound with RPGs. We'd routinely get drive-bys. They would send people from Abu Bali to do these things. And then, literally, they would immediately go back to Abu Bali. They needed to do something about these insurgents, who had found a safe haven up north across the Euphrates River. The Lima Company commander informed his Marines that they would soon be clearing Abu Bali a village of about 30 buildings surrounded by farms and loaded with insurgents. So we're really excited. We're like, yeah, we're going to go get these fucking bad guys and we're going to solve this problem for these people who are just trying to go to school and live their life and get medical care. The quickest way to get to Abu Bali was by crossing the Euphrates River by boat. It's a wide river in a big open space where there is no cover in case of enemy fire. This operation would require air support and heavily armed boats. They have giant miniguns on them. All the guys look super badass. Like, like this is so cool. And as we're getting onto the boats, we had four or five helicopters in support of our mission. It was just such a cool, like, little movie-esque type thing. 12 to 15 Marines loaded onto each boat. With only five boats, it would take several trips transport the entire company. So there were multiple sticks and multiple landings. Helicopters that were above us saw a bunch of technicals. Technicals is another word used to describe insurgents. So we're getting on this boat, feel super badass, and then all of a sudden these helicopters start shooting um, Hellfire missiles. The helicopter gunners could see sudden enemy activity on the other end of Abu Bali. They watched as enemy combatants mounted into jeeps and pickup trucks armed with AK-47s and RPGs. Hellfire missiles are one of the last things you want to hear before starting a river crossing. Thankfully, the helicopter fire held back any insurgent attack. Krogan and his company were able to step off the boat at the edge of Abu Bali. Where we got dropped off, I don't know what type of trees they were, but they thick white petals everywhere. It looked almost like an orchard, and it was gorgeous. Like, it was, it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen, which was really effing weird. 
because it was one of the most scared I've ever been in my entire life. The Marines were on high alert as they stepped foot in insurgent control territory. You know, I'm walking through this gorgeous orchard within the first like two minutes of getting off the boat. I find a claymore, not an actual claymore, um, a, uh, it's called a grape shot. So you take a empty ammo can or container and you fill it with shrapnel and glass, you shit in it, you piss in it. These grape shots were designed to kill and wound unsuspecting Marines. They could also infect them with diseases. They had hung a couple at, fit, at head level throughout the orchard. It was just surreal, you know, super gorgeous. And then I turn around and I look and there's this thing designed to just put screws and bullet casings into my face, you know, while Hellfire missiles are, you know, shooting people driving around in Jeeps. The company had found all the improvised grape shots without any of them detonating. Had the Marines done this mission at night, they may not have been so lucky. Finding these grape shots was a precursor to what they could expect to encounter in Abu Bali for the next two weeks. We knew the two weeks was going to be very rough. We knew. Every 15 feet you'd find an IED or a cache. This imminent danger they constantly faced changed their approach to patrolling. So the type of patrolling was completely different. Basically hard hits on houses, where the F are your weapons, small little engagements. Small engagements are short firefights with insurgents. They had become so routine that Krogan describes them as small. And within a few days, they were finding a ton of enemy ordnance. We had already found pretty sophisticated IED materials. Through the middle of town, they had a giant wadi. This wadi was like an open sewer system for the town. What looked like a trench or a large gutter ran up and down the dirt road. It was about 10 feet deep and 5 feet wide. The whole thing was lined with explosives and weapons and ammo. So we just lit that motherfucker on fire. And there's a huge giant fire going down the middle of the town while we're doing hard hits and all this ordinance is going off. I think we only killed one guy throughout that whole thing and we couldn't find the body. We just found the car, a bunch of blood in the back. Lima Company were conducting raids on a daily basis, but still coming under frequent enemy fire. And the local Iraqis weren't much help. So the, the town itself just was holding everything. Nobody would talk to us. I mean, all the people we talked to, they were just kind of pieces of shit. With little help from the locals, the insurgents were eventually pushed out of Abu Bali. They retreated to the outskirts of town, where they knew the Marines would soon follow. Things got weird when we went out there. We were all kind of on the edge of the actual town. Um, going into the farmland. A Lima Company squad comprising of 14 Marines began a patrol on the morning of March 13, 2007. On this day, one of the Marines stepped on an IED. A pressure plate IED, and they got, I mean, he got pretty tore up. A pressure plate IED is an improvised explosive device that is activated when pressure is applied to the top in this case, a Marine unknowingly detonated the IED. After that happened, there was like an eight or nine man L-shaped ambush. An 
L-shaped ambush is also called a complex attack. This is when insurgents wait, sighted in with their AK-47s, waiting for the IED to detonate. The blast initiates the attack. The IED typically kills and injures several people nearby. The noise deafens the ears of anyone close, and the cloud of dust and smoke temporarily blinds anyone near the blast radius. This makes it difficult to see where the insurgents are firing from and can create a chaotic scene as Marines are running for cover. That day, Krogan was in a different squad as the injured Marine, so he wasn't on that patrol. Instead, he was on a rooftop listening to the radio chatter. Somebody was hot miking. Hot miking is when someone is accidentally pressing down on their radio button, so everyone tuned into that frequency can hear what's happening. So literally you heard talking, literally talking like, dude, where's my leg? You know, you hear Bentley be like, you're good, man. And then Arnett, you, know, you hear him like where the bandages and everything like that. And we're just sitting on this roof. Sorry. Um, you know, just listening talk less and less and less and then he couldn't see right before he went on the bird because his vision went so hear him at Bentley where are you and stuff like that so um, when we heard like him asking where people were because he couldn't see we all kind of knew he was he was gonna die We censored the name of the fallen Marine, out of respect to him and his family. It was Lima Company's first KIA, and they weren't even halfway through their deployment. After was killed, we decided that we're going to push hard into these farming areas because it became clear that that was their route to come in to get to their weapons hub. We start finding abandoned houses. One was clearly a medical hub. You know, they had old school IV drips going. It was clear that this was used by the insurgents to take care of their fighters. Then there was another house where he went in that had a chain link fence inside of a tub that looked like it was hooked up to a car battery. It was basically a torture room. Blood all over, it was insane. They continued patrolling the farmhouses. The squads rotated in eight-hour shifts so that one was out at all times. On one patrol, Krogan encountered an unusual situation with an Iraqi family. The locals out here would talk to us more. One of them comes up, and I was a point man at the time, comes up and talks directly to me. He knows a little bit of English, and he's kind of asking for help. And he's like, now that you're here, if you leave, they will come back and kill everybody. You have to stay. I'm kind of like, okay, because I've kind of heard this spiel before. This local Iraqi tells him to wait because he wants to show the squad something. And he has a bag and he's like, look, you know, this is what they did to my brother or my cousin. And it's a head in a bag. And then he brings out his brother who literally looks like he's walking on two broken legs, like face beaten to a pole. Like they just did this yesterday because they... He tried to say that they couldn't stay at her house. As the insurgents were slowly pushed out of Abu Bali, they forced local Iraqis to feed them 
and provide them shelter. Krogan and his squad didn't want to leave this family behind and leave them at the mercy of the insurgents. But Lima Company's commanding officer ordered them to return to base. They're like, you guys need to come back. We're like, no, we're not, no. We're not fucking leaving to have this fa- come back in the morning and have this family be slaughtered. We're not doing it. One of Krogan's squad mates refused to leave. This country guy literally had never seen a building over two stories. He's like, I'm not leaving. NJP me, send me wherever. I'm not leaving this family. Like, I'm not doing it. Eventually, he gets on the radio and tells the CO that. He's really quiet, like country guy. Well, sir, I believe that if we leave this family here, they will die. And I cannot see my family again with that on my conscience. CO's like, hold, you know, wait one. Five minutes later, they're like, all right, you, have, you guys have clearance. Stay at the house. Good night. The Iraqis fed the Marines and thanked them. Krogan's squad returned a little while later to check on the family. Yeah, about a month or two, month or two later, and they were like, "Yeah, you guys are awesome. We're alive. Like my brother's face is healed. Like they're super scared of the Marines. They don't come around anymore." After two weeks in Abu Bali, the mission to drive the insurgents out was a success. Lima Company had proven themselves very effective. But the deployment wasn't over. They were now given orders to go to Ramadi, where they would offer support to an army unit that had suffered heavy casualties. In three weeks or something, they had 20 wounded KIA, something like that. Five guys all got obliterated by one IED. The war had left most of Ramadi abandoned. The buildings were riddled with bullet holes, and the streets were full of burnt-out cars. Insurgents had cut holes through the walls of many of the homes here, creating an almost tunnel-like system. This helped them launch quick attacks against U.S. forces and allowed them to escape easily. But they also used these holes for a different purpose. So what they were doing is they were cutting out holes in the walls, and then they would shoot at you from a house. So then you would stack on the wall to go push into the house, and they just slice the whole stack in half with an IED. So the army unit needed some help. Then we went to Ramadi. We were dropped off in APCs. So an APC the- is an armored personnel carrier designed to transport infantry into an active battlefield. The current army unit in Ramadi was under attack, so Lima Company Marines arrived to help. The hatch to the APC opened, and Krogan's squad ran out to fight the insurgents. First building I go into, Brains all over the floor, shell casings everywhere. The Marines cleared the buildings one by one, where the insurgents were attacking the soldiers from earlier. They didn't find anything. When the buildings were cleared, they set up a perimeter and security outpost on the roofs of several houses. Two machine gunners ended up on the same building. They get up there and they're like, what the hell, why are you guys, you know, they're all confused, but they're both set up, you know, because they just set up, boom. And, um... Buddy of mine, Delph, and his assaultment team ran across the street. And they're zigzagging across the street. And I see a dude, maybe a block away, on a roof, lean over and shoot. And there's dust kicking up and everything like that. And it was just, it was really surreal. And we have two machine gun teams directly across from him. And literally everybody just kind of looks and is like, kill this motherfucker. And so you had two squads 
and then two machine gun teams directly across from the sky, all opening up at the same time. And it literally just cut him his body in half. Just decimated. Lima Company didn't spend much time in Ramadi. Their next assignment would be Fallujah. That's when the deployment got very serious. The area of Fallujah they were heading to is called the Shark Fin. It's a narrow town separated from Fallujah proper by the Euphrates River. A bridge connects the two. It was the central hub for all the IEDs that were being created. The insurgency had a Somalian bomb maker, and he was teaching everybody in the town how to make IEDs. The most effective bombs against U.S. troops in Fallujah were coming out of the shark fin. Lima Company was tasked with routing out the insurgents. Literally the first day we got there, we pucked a whole town. A puck is when Marines arrest someone. Lima Company went door to door looking for the bomb maker and arresting anyone who could have been involved. So we pucked, I think, like 90 plus men in this town. Literally, if you were a man in this town, we arrested you. But Krogan had his reservations about the arrests. You know, it made me feel bad. Go and puck a whole town, everybody who's 13 to 70. So you got grandfathers there, you have kids who, if they were in America, would be starting their first year of high school, sitting there scared as shit. Krogan's reservations would soon end. We found like 20 IEDs there. One of the Humvees for the unit that we were working with got blown up. I remember watching them right before they got blown up, being like, dude, we haven't cleared that area. They shouldn't. Boom! Whole front comes off. I remember the tire going like two, three hundred meters in the air, everything. So I was the first one to get to that vehicle. And uh, I remember being really scared that I was going to open the door and blood was just going to like fall out. Luckily, everybody's okay. I think one guy broke his ankle or something. For the remainder of Lima Company's deployment, they would be operating in and around Fallujah. The city had been a battlefield for over two years with different factions competing for control. The insurgents maintained a presence that U.S. forces couldn't drive out. So they started working with local tribes and militia groups. We worked with a sub-tribe called Afon. They were very, very prominent in our combat operations once we got to Fallujah. There was also a lot of tribal warfare at that time. Various tribes, divided by ethnicity, religion, and political allegiances, were at war with each other. Fallujah was their home, and most of them wanted the insurgents out. But they used the opportunity of war to attack their local enemies. U.S. forces often worked with the tribes who were the best sources of intel and who had the most powerful militias. But these tribes were more concerned with their own interests. And so they were able to consolidate power because they kind of had a free, they, they could do whatever they wanted. I don't think that they were bad, but I definitely don't think they were good. Some of these tribes were brutal. They weren't bound by rules and didn't worry about bad press. They killed anyone that stood in their way. If they could have consolidated power by killing us, they would have done it. But it was just more financially and politically advantageous for them to work with us at the time. It really is like almost like a Game of Thrones for them over there. And we just happened to be the biggest hammer. The insurgents were more effective in their attacks against these groups. 
the Afan tribe that Lima Company often worked with suffered a massive attack on their compound. Dozens were wounded and several were killed. They also used to drive like these black Mercedes and all of a sudden we see them coming down the road like 14 of these fucking cars and they just start pulling out wounded onto our compound. It was, it was mass triage. The docs are dealing with people that are bleeding out, legs are missing. While the corpsmen were busy treating the most severely wounded, the Marines were treating everyone else. Emergency medical aid is taught to all U.S. service members entering a combat zone. One injury Marines are taught to treat is a hemoneurothorax. This happens when there's a puncture in the chest cavity that starts to fill with blood or air. As the cavity fills, the lungs have difficulty expanding until they can't expand at all. And usually, without any medical care, the person suffocates and dies. So something like a hemothorax is actually pretty easy if you have the right equipment. Krogan noticed that one of the injured tribesmen had signs that he was suffering from this type of injury. You make a hole, and it's a really simple procedure, but it's also, like, crazy. The procedure involves making a hole in the person's chest cavity using a needle. I remember doing that and I s sat the guy up and t opened the valve and just tons of blood just came out, but he was able to breathe. The tribesmen that Krogan treated had survived. Lima Company continued to patrol and clear the shark fin. They found dozens of IEDs and captured the Somali bomb maker. Now they were moving closer into Fallujah proper to patrol the area alongside the river. We did an operation called Operation Riverwalk, and we did, I think, four of them. And the first one was a mess. Lima Company Marines were to patrol the area on foot, going house to house, looking for insurgents and bomb-making material. We come into a building, and they're just empty bottles of fertilizer, like five-gallon jugs, filled up whole room in this one house. I was like, one of these houses is ready to explode. Ammonium nitrate and fertilizers are often mixed with other explosive materials to boost the severity of bombs. This wasn't a farming community, so Krogan knew that something was off. As we're at the house and we're about to radio it up, the command element goes into a house, the FTO for the command element takes a knee, poof. Explosions everywhere. The CO is wounded, multiple people are wounded, Half the people are knocked out. The operation now became a mass casualty evacuation. A Chinook helicopter capable of carrying up to 70 people arrived to get the injured Marines out. We're running people out to the bird, and we're doing security, and everybody's kind of like, what the hell just happened? And who's alive? Who's hurt? All this stuff is going on. We don't really know, know what's happened. We just know we're running people out to this bird. The Chinook evacuated 10 service members, and luckily, all survived. But now, Lima Company was down 10 people. They realized that our numbers had taken a significant hit. And so within, I don't know, five, 10 minutes of the Chinook taking off, we start getting accurate machine gun and light arms fire from three or four buildings across the Euphrates. Insurgents were armed with PK and RPKs, both Soviet-made machine guns, as well as the more common AK-47. And then they start walking in mortars. 
Mortars are an artillery weapon that fire explosive rounds. A 10-pound shell has a blast radius of over 120 feet. Walking in mortars means that insurgents were adjusting their fire after every mortar explosion, so each one was landing closer and closer to the Marines. So the first five minutes of it were hectic because we didn't know where the fire was coming from. Everybody was trying to get, you know, behind cover, and that just turned into a big firefight. We couldn't get air, we couldn't get anything because regiment was worried about civilian casualties, even though these were abandoned buildings. In the ensuing battle, the Marines returned fire with various weapons like the 50 cal machine gun and the Mark 19 grenade launcher. An estimated 10 insurgents were killed. Although enemy fighters were no match for the Marines, it was here in Fallujah where Lima Company suffered their next casualty, this time from sniper fire. One was the young man who got shot in front of me at line while he was getting a haircut. We had like one or two guys who could cut hair pretty well. And uh, we just sit outside and you know do it. And it was nice and everything, easy cleanup. I'm sitting in line and all of a sudden starts laughing. And then while he's laughing, blood starts coming up. And you know, he was shot through the lung and heart from like 1200 meters away. Killing a Marine during a seemingly mundane task is a form of psychological warfare. It served no tactical advantage. Instead, it was intended to lower the morale and spirits of Lima Company. Within a week, the sniper struck again. He shot while he was changing a upgun, and he got shot through the side and in his liver, and he passed away. Lima Company completed their deployment soon after those two deaths. In total, they suffered three KIA. Even more returned home wounded, and many came back with injuries that weren't so obvious. Pretty much everybody I know got tagged at some point with an IED or got knocked out from getting thrown from the overpressure from something. This can cause damage to the brain, since these blasts often lead to traumatic brain injury. At some point, you can only just take so many concussions before you have to be sent home. You know, people were having seizures, people were just blacking out. Not only are these injuries difficult to identify, they're also difficult to treat, and some of the problems they caused got worse over time. There were certain people that couldn't live on the second floor on Camp Lejeune because if they walked up or down stairs, they'd black out and fall down the stairs. It was, it was pretty weird when we got back, because you just never knew, you know, everybody would be hanging out unless, uh, hey, we're having a seizure. Some injuries and conditions can take years to develop, like post-traumatic stress disorder. Today, PTSD affects thousands of combat veterans, including many from Lima Company. The first, like, two, three years that everybody got out, nobody knew any of that. People were killing themselves, people were getting legal trouble. The former members of Lima Company continue to stay in contact on social media groups where they offer each other guidance and support. Somebody will see on the group, hey guys, this is my number if you don't have it, I gotta fucking talk to somebody right now. The next day we'll all check up and almost always that person will come back and be like, yeah, it was just a bad night, like, you know, one of those nights. It took like four or five people off of themselves get to that point and it's too much. 
Chris Krogan served five years of honorable service in the Marine Corps. He's currently in culinary school. You know, it took me a long time to realize what I really wanted out of life. And it's gonna sound super anti-Marine, but I kinda wanna just have a part-time job cooking and be a stay-at-home dad. It's hard to find a solid takeaway from war. The moments and events can be so random and seem very unfair. Survivors are often left wondering why they were spared, why the sniper didn't shoot at them, or how did they miss stepping on the hidden explosive instead of their friend? Here at Grunt, we want to tell more stories like Krogan's. If you have one to share, contact us on our website at gruntpodcast.com. If you want to help out, there are many nonprofits that assist veterans like the DAV and the Navy and Marine Corps Relief Society. You can also help us out by donating to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash gruntpodcast. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Angel Rosa and Adam E. Loggins. Stay tuned for more episodes by subscribing to Grunt on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you're getting your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Grunt, a podcast about war and those who fight it. I'm your host, Alex Walensky.